Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. On this day in 1959, a rebellion began in Tibet that led to a brutal crackdown and the exile of the Dalai Lama. We look at how repression of Tibetan Buddhists has been ramping up and at some disturbing parallels with the plight of Uyghur Muslims. And catching a flight didn't always mean wandering through some blend of a mall and a maze, perfume sniffing and tequila tasting. Duty-free shopping was gaining altitude before COVID-19. We look at why it probably should come in for a hard landing now. But first... This week, American health authorities updated their guidance for residents who have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That fortunate one-tenth of the population can now meet in small groups, indoors and unmasked. As more Americans are vaccinated, a growing body of evidence now tells us that there are some activities that fully vaccinated people can resume at low risk to themselves. A two-tiered system of rules is emerging, dividing the haves and the have-nots of the global vaccine rollout. Israel has introduced a green pass into its world-leading inoculation drive. Those who have received their jabs can now go to restaurants, gyms, and theaters. European holiday spots, meanwhile, are preparing to welcome vaccinated travelers. But on Monday, the World Health Organization said it opposed different rules for the vaccinated while access around the world remains unequal. If access to vaccine is inequitous, then inequity and unfairness can be further branded into the system if we continue to make decisions on what people can and can't do, where they can and can't go, on the basis of being vaccinated. Yet several countries are pressing ahead, with what many are calling vaccine passports. It's amazing. Everybody's suddenly talking about them. The American government, the British government, European Union, various smaller countries like Israel are trying them. Indeed, China has already been using something like this for quite a while. Helen Joyce is The Economist's deputy foreign editor. The idea is that if you're someone who's less at risk of getting the sort of infection that will cost a health system a lot of money and you're less at risk of passing the disease on, then why on earth are we making you stay home the way that we're making everybody else stay home? And so it seems that lots of people think that vaccine passports will solve that conundrum. I mean, the first thing to say is that if almost nobody is vaccinated, then there's not much use for one. And if nearly everybody is vaccinated, then there's no use for one either, because vaccines aren't just individual measures. They're a public policy or a public health measure. So they don't just protect your own immune system by priming it so that it can cope with any infection it meets. They actually mean that you're not going to meet many infections because everybody else nearly is vaccinated too. So the only time you might use this sort of passport system is in between, when only some people are vaccinated. 
But if these things are valuable for that, that interim period when a few but not everyone has, has had the vaccinations or are going to get them, that's the period we're in now. As you say, some countries are, are already rolling these things out. So the country that's actually rolled this out in the past couple of weeks that everybody's looking at is Israel. Surprisingly, in a way, given that Israel is such a whiz internationally in technology, they're doing it in a very cack-handed way. Um, they've not really thought properly about security and apparently, quite a lot of people aren't really bothering to get people to show the Green Pass. They're just letting anyone who comes along go in. And I think that's precisely because the vaccination programme is going so well. The government is thinking about it as a way to encourage young people to get their jab. So I don't think it's very representative of the thinking in other countries. Lots of governments have said that they've got their um, civil servants looking at specifications. It's also true for some industry bodies, in particular the International Air Travel Association, IATA, is really quite far along in thinking about the international travel use case. Meanwhile, the sorts of people who are already looking at digital identities and at health apps are racing forward to try to make sure that their app is the one that gets taken into use widely. But a lot of the discussion about vaccine passports is the amount of data one has to hand over. There must be privacy concerns that come with all of this. Depending on how this is implemented, it could be done in a really uh, secure and private way or it could be done really badly and really undermine a public trust in government use of data. There's some clever design work going on on digital identities, which are super, super secure. And, you know, very roughly the way they work is that you sign up in the same way that you'd sign up for mobile banking. So that links you with your phone in a secure way using a government ID. Then there's a secure database, could be the NHS database, or it could be labs and healthcare providers in America, or it could be people like employers who want ID for entering workplaces. And all that happens in between in the app is that it looks at the rules that you need to get into the place. It asks you in the moment if you're willing to answer whether or not you satisfy those rules with the data that you've got stored. And then all that's given is a yes, no answer to the person who has to decide whether to let you in or not. So for COVID, that would mean that it looked at things like whether you'd been vaccinated, whether you'd had a recent test, whether you'd been in quarantine, depending on the location. And there's no tracking possible with this sort of solution. And beyond the matter of privacy, there's also this question of iniquity, I suppose. The risk here is that you create new classes of citizen, no? If implementation is poor, then yes, you could see that happening. However, if the rules for giving the vaccine are fair, and if you've got a good way for people to satisfy conditions, even if they can't get the vaccine, like they can do a test instead. And given also that these things are useful locally for a short time, I don't think people won't accept them. I think it's important that we don't allow people to keep using them after they're no longer useful. So some employers, um, Pimlico Plumbers, which is a big London firm, has said that it's soon going to require all new starts to have had their vaccine. And you think, well, I see that they're going into people's homes and so on. But soon enough, when we hit herd immunity, it actually doesn't matter whether your plumber has been vaccinated or not. There just isn't much COVID circulating. So it'd be important for governments to think about these things. Who's allowed to ask for your data? How long are they allowed to ask for it? For what purposes and so on? So the idea isn't a bad one, but it has to be well implemented and it has to be properly monitored. So with all of those caveats, all of those risks being as they are, the world should be prepared for COVID passports, vaccine passports to be a thing. Yeah, we're heading towards vaccine passports being a fixture for sure. I don't think there'd be much use really domestically in many countries, a bit of use maybe. But where they're absolutely going to be useful and where they're going to be a fixture for years is in international travel. And that's because of the differences in vaccine rollout. 
you know, Israel's heading towards herd immunity, but then there are countries that have very slow vaccination and very few infections, like Australia and Singapore. And then there's other places in Africa, for example, where they're just not going to get vaccinated for years to come, unfortunately, and that's because of global inequality. So it's just a fact that if we want people to be able to cross borders safely, we're going to have to take into account who could be carrying the infection with them and who not. At the moment, we're testing people and putting people in quarantine, but that amounts to pretty much a lockdown. And the amount of government support that's going to the airline industry is absolutely eye-watering, even in the context of the past year. That can't go on. We have to let the people who can travel safely travel safely. And the only way to do that really is a technological solution like this. Helen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For a deeper dive into how COVID vaccines are making for brilliant science and tricky politics, listen to our sister show, The Jab. This week's episode is all about clinical trials, what they're for, how they work, and why people, myself included, participate in them. There's a new episode of The Jab every Monday. Find it from your preferred podcast purveyor. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For decades, the Chinese state has led a campaign against Tibetan Buddhism and its spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, whom they characterize as a treasonous separatist. The campaign has taken many forms, from propaganda published in state media to laws aiming to regulate the reincarnation of any future Buddhist leaders. But in recent months, an attempt to quash the Dalai Lama's influence over Tibetans has been stepped up even further in a move that has worrying echoes of China's campaign to re-educate its Muslim Uyghur population. Tibetan Buddhism is undergoing a process that the party calls sinicization, which is essentially an effort to make it more acceptable to the Communist Party. Gotti Epstein is our China affairs editor. It's really the latest stage in a decades-long effort to uh, crush Tibetan identity. And if any of that sounds familiar, it's quite similar in many ways to what's going on in neighboring Xinjiang, where the party is attempting to do quite the same thing with the Islamic faith. In Tibet, they're certainly not uh, replicating the atrocities on the scale that they are uh, occurring in Xinjiang with you know, internment camps, with mass forced labor, with separation of children from their parents. But there are similarities with how the party is treating Tibetans their faith, and the Dalai Lama that reflect the party's concern or insecurity about having people within its border, millions of people that have a, a different identity from the, the Han Chinese identity that the party is much more comfortable with. But it's been, it's been clear that the, the Chinese state has had it in for the Dalai Lama for really quite some time. Why is it ratcheting up this pressure now? There's a couple of reasons for that. I, I think one is the Dalai Lama's 85 the question of what happens when he dies is very much on the minds of the Communist Party. That will create a great period of uncertainty across the Tibetan regions. It's something they've been worried about for a long time. In 2007, 
They even asserted legal authority uh, over the process of the Dalai Lama's reincarnation. So I think we should view these latest efforts as really an intensifying campaign to separate the Tibetan people from the Dalai Lama. And in turn, bring them more under the wing of the Chinese state. I mean, very much what we're seeing in Xinjiang. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the current party boss of Xinjiang, Chen Chuangguo, cut his teeth in Tibet. He deployed heavy-handed security tactics in Tibet that he then put into place in Xinjiang. So Tibet was really a testing ground. But there are a lot of limits to this comparison I'm making between Tibet and Xinjiang. I mean, unlike Uyghurs, Tibetans can still keep in touch with people outside of China using WeChat, the very popular social media app. They don't have to fear that they're going to get arrested just for being in touch, but they do have to be cautious. Posting images online of the Dalai Lama, for instance, can be an imprisonable offense. And the, the sinicization effort that's, that's going on now in Tibet, what does that look like on the ground? It's a multi-pronged effort in Tibet. In terms of the security state, it has become very advanced and penetrates into every level of Tibetan society. You have informants in, in every village, you have high-tech surveillance, you have monitoring of, of smartphones, you have security cameras in monasteries. But perhaps an even more important prong of this strategy is what they're doing with the Tibetan language and schools. So in Tibet, as in Xinjiang, they have what they euphemistically call bilingual education, which is really education that's mostly in Mandarin Chinese and very little in the native language of Tibetan or in Xinjiang in, in Uyghur language. And this is an effort to kind of break the links between generations. And another important component of what's taught in schools is what they call patriotic education. Now, there's patriotic education all across China, but there's more emphasis on it in areas like Tibet and Xinjiang. And at a party conclave on Tibet-related policy last August, Xi Jinping actually stressed that patriotism needed to be even more thoroughly introduced and uh, reinforced in the curriculum of Tibetans of all ages. The party, he said, should, quote, plant the seeds of loving China in the depths of the hearts of every teenager. I think the fact that he put emphasis on this indicates that they feel they, they have a lot more work to do on this front. So this general push and, and the specific focus on the Dalai Lama, is, is it working? Is it drawing people more under the, 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 the state's wing and, and away from Tibetan Buddhism? There really is no indication that it is. With adult Tibetans today or older Tibetans today, the idea that they would exclude the Dalai Lama from their religion or their lives is sort of absurd on its face. The Dalai Lama is the paramount figure of their spiritual lives, and I don't see that changing. However, there is that concern that the goal is to break that link, that bond between the Dalai Lama and the future generations of Tibetans. And they feel that this is an existential battle in Tibet. Gadi, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jason. Okay, suppose you get vaccinated, you get your vaccine passport, and you head to catch a long-awaited international flight. You know what you'll find at the airport. Bored travelers meandering in a weird cathedral to capitalism, stocked with tax-free designer sunglasses or high-end booze. 
For now, the pandemic has crippled that duty-free industry. And that has some wondering whether it's worth preserving. Historically, if you were traveling on a cruise ship across the Atlantic, you got all the alcohol and cigarettes you wanted without any duty paid. And the principle was transposed, if you will, to aviation starting in the early 1950s in Europe. And it was basically a questionable wheeze to give European airports a bit more money. Stanley Pignol writes about business for The Economist. Obviously, that industry has grown and grown and airports have become these giant shopping malls with a few departure gates kind of tacked on as an afterthought. The problem is, as it's grown, it's become untenable. What do you mean untenable? Give me the case against duty-free. If you think about it, the modern tax code is really about two or three things. One of them is to dampen inequality, so to make the rich pay more than the poor, and duty-free is an industry that benefits people who fly, who tend to be rich. The second thing is tax codes tend to want for people to be more green, and the duty-free industry is targeted mostly at people who fly. And then a third thing is you want people to smoke and drink less, those things are heavily taxed, and the duty-free industry, at least at the beginning, was very much about selling cigarettes and alcohol. So as the industry has grown, it has made less and less sense as something to exist. I mean, isn't the pandemic kind of doing some of that work? Very much so. Before the pandemic, so in 2019, the industry was worth about $86 billion a year. This is all the stuff that's sold in duty-free and around travel generally. That figure, we think, is down about two-thirds, three-quarters in 2020, and it's going to come back very gradually as aviation comes back. And not just any aviation, but particularly international, intercontinental travel that generates most duty-free sales. So who's going to feel that? It's obviously travelers who aren't going to get their discounted electronics and cognac, but also the airports. The airports depend on duty-free for about a third of their income. It's their second most valuable source of income after the money they get directly from airlines. And then you also have the companies that sell through duty-free. It's high-end booze, it's luxury, and it's things like perfumes. Around 20% of all perfume is sold through duty-free now. But look, flying has been democratized somewhat. It's not excluding huge swathes of the public. I mean, it has to be said, sometimes it's nice to buy cheap noise-canceling headphones or chocolate or cognac, as you say. It is, but bear in mind, Jason, that you need to cross a border in order to qualify for duty-free. So if you are traveling within the U.S., say, or within Europe, you're not going to get those benefits. And secondly, why get those benefits anyway? This is the argument from duty-free's boosters. They say, you know, the income from shops is essential to sustain airports, which would otherwise need more taxpayer funding. Our argument is if airports need state help, especially after the pandemic, that's fine. We should pay it out transparently through the tax code. You shouldn't really have these duty-free tax dodges that distort the economy and give some benefits to some people, but no benefits to others. So you're arguing for out-and-out killing the industry altogether? Well, it may be the end of duty-free shopping. I don't think that means it's the end of airport shopping. Airports are full of quite bored, quite rich people. So they're going to remain shopping centers for the foreseeable future. I think one innovation that unfortunately we will not see the back of are what the industry calls walkthroughs, which is when you come out of security and you immediately get thrown into a maze of perfume spritzers trying to sell you cologne. That business model works far too well. So it's probably past time to call time on duty-free, but airport shopping is there to stay. Stanley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
please return to your seats, place your tray tables in the upright position, and leave us a rating and a review. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.